Namaste and good evening in the US, good morning in India and welcome to my friend Francois. Thank you sir. This is wonderful. I think we are meeting after many, many years. Exactly. And uh, just uh, all of you know him, he's a famous uh, journalist from France, settled in India in uh, uh, Auroville. I let him introduce himself, but we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, admired his work, met in Auroville a long time back. Right. And I remember around 2003, 4, 5, somewhere in there, you were beginning your museum project. Exactly. I so, was building them. Yeah. The exhibitions. So maybe you tell a little bit about uh, your love for India, your stay in India. Most people know you, but it doesn't hurt. And then what your project is. I came to India by accident. Uh, I drove from Paris to Pondicherry when I was very young and I fell in love with India and stayed there. I had done a bit of journalism, so at some point I started write freelancing and then I became the correspondent for Le Figaro in Paris. It's which is I, a major newspaper. Which is the largest uh, circulation paper <clears throat> in France. And then I covered Kashmir. It was the year, you know, in the 80s when Kashmir was boiling and Kashmir opened my eyes. I lost my innocence in Kashmir because for the first time I saw how much the Hindus were suffering. And I saw them evicted from Kashmir by force and just fleeing, you know, their, leaving their ancestral land, their, you know, their houses just in a few days without firing a single shot in self-defense. And I started looking at Indian history then. Then I started reading Indian history. I learned about Aurangzeb. And because of Kashmir, because of the Hindus, you know, my eyes were open and I looked at India differently. And from then on, you know, I started my quest and I became, I guess, one of the very few journalists, Western journalists, defending Hindus, standing for this wonderful, you know, civilization and culture and knowledge which props up Hinduism and which you have defended so brilliantly. So now your uh, museum. So, so Kashmir, again Kashmir, I, I, everybody cared about the Muslims of, Kashmir, of the right. Valley of Kashmir. You know, the, the human rights, you know, they're being tortured by the army, whatever. And nobody spoke about the Hindus, so I thought I should do something for the Hindus of Kashmir and hence in 2005, I got a prize of journalism called the Nachiketa Award of Excellence in Journalism from the hands of Mr. Vajpayee, and there was a prize money. And with that money, I started a foundation called FACT, Foundation Against Continuing Terrorism. Good. And my first exhibition was on the Kashmiri Hindus. And that was open in the Delhi's Habitat Center by Sri Sri Ravishanka and Mr. Advani came, Dr. Karan Singh came. So that was my first exhibition and then I did something on Bangladesh because I had been to Bangladesh many times as a correspondent. I, there I saw also the Hindus were persecuted and they still are today. So an exhibition on Bangladesh, a little more secular because Christians are also persecuted in Bangladesh and even Ahmadi Muslims, you know, the Aga Khan Muslims. So then one more exhibition, then on Axalism, Mr. Advani asked me to do something on that. So I had four, five, six, seven exhibitions. In, in your place in Pune? Or different places? Well, well, I kept them in Pune okay. because I, I had a place in Pune, so I kept them in a flat. And then Sri Sri gave me a land in Pune near the airport and I started the museum in 2012. Good. Sri Sri came, he did the Bumi Puja. 
Then the first thing I did was to build, a, you have this wonderful book here about Sri Aurobindo. Yes. And Sri Aurobindo had a vision of a place in Maharashtra, you know, where a place of knowledge. So I decided to do a temple of knowledge and my first building was a temple dedicated to Mother India, uh, to Bharat Mata, giving the sword to defend Mother India to Shivaji Maharaj. And Shivaji Maharaj also is a great guy, you know, he's a fantastic hero and Indians don't understand the value of, the, of this man. In France we have Napoleon and Napoleon is like, you know, for us French he's it's still a hero, you know. We have a, sure. I was born near Les Invalides, you know, it's that museum, huge museum and every year there are books and films about his life, his mistresses, his laws, he's met so many laws which are still today in use in France. Shivaji Maharaj wasn't part with Napoleon, he was even more spiritual. Shrivabhidu said he was a vibhuti, he was someone sent to defend India against foreigners and the foreigners were Aurangzeb at that time. And with a few hundred men, you know, and his wits and his courage and his heart, you know, he stood against the most powerful army in the world. And Aurangzeb, as you know, who wrote his own will, said, you know, my biggest blunder in life was to have let Shivaji Maharaj escape from Agra. <laughs> right. In his will, by his yeah. own hand, you know. Yeah. So, again, Aurangzeb is so important in Indian history because he has such a high place in Indian history books, even written by Indians. And because of Kashmir, because Kashmir is the shadow of Aurangzeb, you know, the Kashmir used to be a Sufi place and now it's totally overtaken by the shadow of Aurangzeb and the hard Sunni, Wahhabite, you know, <coughs> spirit of Aurangzeb. And because of Shivaji Maharaj, I thought, but this man is not a hero, he was a monster actually. because. He raised, you know, all the temples of Hindus, you know, he killed them, converted them, imposed the Jigata. There was a French doctor in the court of Aurangzeb called Dr. François Bernier, and he wrote a book when he came back to France. And in that book, he described a scene where Aurangzeb himself, with his elephants, tramples upon in Delhi on Hindus protesting the tax. So. We built an exhibition on Aurangzeb according to his own records because Aurangzeb was a very meticulous emperor and you know he lived till 80, which is very old for that time. And he was so proud of what he was doing. He was very proud, you know, so whatever he did, you know, he put it on record and signed it and these records are kept in India. Some are in the Bikaner archive and I got my professor access them and some are in Hyderabad and we're in the process of getting all of them from Hyderabad. And every deed of Aurangzeb is recorded and signed by him. So we got hold of them, we got a team of painters, and we painted scenes which describe Aurangzeb in his own words. And you have his writings and the translation. Right, right. So when he orders the to destroy a temple, there is his order, which we have, and we did a scene painting destruction of the temple. So that also was opened in Delhi by Sri Sri and uh, Mr. Advani. And that exhibition is a difficult exhibition because we were talking about difficulties. So there I, I encountered difficulty. In Delhi, you know, people disagreed and they wrote it or they came to me and they said, why do you do that? Why do you want to wreck the past? You know, this is communal disharmony. That was it. But when I brought it in Chennai and it was exhibited in a very prestigious place in Chennai, the, there is a guy in Chennai whose ancestor was named by Aurangzeb, he's called the Nawab of Arkot. I don't know if you heard about him. Yes. He had a palace in Chennai and he came to see that exhibition. And he happened to be friend with 
the son of Mr. Karunadidi, who then was in power. Mm. His name is Stalin. Mm. Yes, what's the name? What's the name? What's the yes, name? Yes. Mr. Stalin. <laughs> so Mr. Stalin sent one of his highest officers to close down the mm. exhibition. I yes. was in Delhi, and the, the the police came. There were two old ladies who were kept keeping the exhibition. They took them to jail, and they threw some of the paintings on the ground. There's a painting describing the destruction of the Somnath Temple, which was destroyed seven times, as you know, once by Aurangzeb. They threw it on the ground, you know. That time my paintings were framed in glass, so it was, it damaged some of the paintings. And I flew from Delhi, you know, got the ladies released, but it took me six months to get back the exhibition. I brought it to Pondicherry, repaired it, then sent it to Pune. And when the museum opened uh, in 2012, it, it is now exhibited there permanently. But it's still an exhibition that, though it is historically impeccable, that, you know, triggers controversy. Yeah. And you know, there's recently a, a book by uh, one of the persons I'm criticizing now is uh, Sheldon Pollock. He's got a whole school of Indology, which is very biased, Hindu-phobic and all. And one of his students, who is now a professor at uh, uh, Rutgers University, she has written a book on Aurangzeb praising him and he's this great guy and all of us and people like you, I guess, she doesn't name though, are all these chauvinists and saffron and nationalists and all these bad guys. But Aurangzeb is a hero. So I think this this business about uh, bringing the truth about Aurangzeb is going to go on for a while because there's going to be people on the other side who think he's actually a hero. Yes, many people still, I mean, there are many people who still worship Aurangzeb in India and abroad. But, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a one of our paintings Aurangzeb is supposed to be a patron of arts, but actually the musicians of his court, because he banned music, it's contrary to Islam, right. he banned music. So there is a scene which is historical. The musicians were Muslims, so Hindus were converted to Islam to be able to play music. They buried yeah. their instruments in a mock burial, and we painted that scene. You know, and this is very symbolic of what Aurangzeb was, and he was a monster. Burying the arts. Burying the arts, you know, and I mean, he killed his, he poisoned his father, you know, he beheaded his brother, his brother Darashuko was actually the eldest son and the preferred. He was supposed to take the throne. He was supposed to take the throne, Shah Jahan liked him and he wanted to take the throne, yes. so Aurangzeb uh, beheaded and he imprisoned his son and his will, in his will again, he said, never trust your sons, you know, what a, what a man, you know, who <laughs> says, never trust your sons. Yeah. So why do you think uh, uh, Indians love the oppressor. It's very strange. Some kind of Stockholm Syndrome. See, I, you, I, you know, you look at the Chinese, they were never colonized, except, you know, very short period. Uh, uh, so they are proud. I mean, they're proud to the extreme. Uh, but Indians, I think, were colonized. Too long. Too it's long. not just British, it's also Islamic colonization. Yes. And that's another thing, we do not refer to the Islamic period as colonization, as though they were one of us, although they were foreigners who came and they colonized us. We only talk about the European colonization. Yes. And so right. there's, there's some denial of the Islamic colonization. We've sort of domesticated Islam and feel that now it is just one of us, not realizing it's thousands of miles to the, in another continent and it arrived here violently. Very violently. I think the trauma of the Muslim invasions, there is some professor who calculated that a hundred million Hindus died from the time of the Hindu Kush till Mumbai, you know, 2011. That, that trauma, I think, is still alive in the 
unconscious, you know, collective of the Hindus, you know, and, and it triggers panic and fear. And you know, the spirit of Kshatriya is lost in India, and that, that's what I admire in you, you know, that what you are doing, uh, you know, requires courage because we are attacked. Yes. We are attacked. Yes. You know, we are targeted, you know, yes. we are vulnerable because there are not many of us, you right. know. But you more more than me even, because in India I can say I'm kind of protected. But here in the US, <laughs> yeah. you know, there are so many academics who are Hindus themselves yeah, yeah, yeah. who are so hostile and so vehement and so so dangerous in a way. And you know, you know the sad thing is our own Indian Hindus who benefit from what I'm doing because they can't do it, they don't have the courage to do it or the knowledge to do it or the hard work to do it. I'm doing the dirty work for them. Privately, they'll be happy, but publicly they want to also be nice guys, guys with the other fellow. This kind of a duplicity and hypocrisy really bothers me. I feel, I feel that they are sort of betraying, using me to do the work they can't do or won't do. No, no, you have to do it. You have to do it. It's, a, it's a, you know, and that's what also Shivaji Maharaj taught me that, you know, that this love for Mother India, this, this, you know, this spiritual, it's a spiritual love in a way, you know, that you, that great spirituality which is still alive in India in spite of all these traumas, you know, this is what you're standing for, so more, one, more than the Hindus. Sure. So one of the things I, I, I'm not sure I read correctly, some blog or something you wrote, you recommended that it would be a good thing to reunify India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Do you feel that way? Well, that's you, what Shurabindo said, you know, um, Shurabindo is my, my, my first guru when I, I came to Pondicherry, I met the mother, she was alive, I read Shurabindo and he was a great nationalist. I mean, the, the credit of independence goes only to Mahatma Gandhi and Nehru, but actually it should go to Shurabindo, Tilak and so many before, you know, from the early right, right. 1900s. So Bachchandar Bose, so all of these guys, Bose, yeah, Bhagat Singh. Yeah. Now, Shurabindo said in 1947 it was, that it was a tragedy and a mistake, the partition of... Uh, of uh, now, what was desirable at that time, the unity, may not be, if he were alive right. today, desirable under today's circumstances. Because of the number of Muslims. And because of the radicalization, they become part of the Middle East. The, the three generations have read textbooks which say that they are really part of the Middle East. Sure. So I think that one of the dangerous things today, people, for today would be a reunification because it's like swallowing a cancer. Right. I mean, it's like telling Germany that you should unify with Turkey and maybe you will, dis you will assimilate them, but actually it'll, the opposite will happen. Sure. So if we were unified, hypothetically in South Asia, uh, you know, 35-40% will be Muslims, highly united, uh, you know, with uh, Islamic uh, funding from various places uh, overseas, and the others would be, di you know, diverse Hindus, mixed up Hindus, confused Hindus, <laughs> leftist Hindus, self-hating Hindus, divided, fragmented Hindus, sure. and I think we'll just end up being uh, back in the Mughal Empire. <laughs> I think this will be the return of the Mughals, uh, if this were to happen. In fact, the Mullah Omars said uh, many years ago, uh, a Pakistani, Pakistan's former ambassador to England, Akbar Ahmed, who was a visiting professor at Princeton, now he's in American University in Washington, uh, he used to invite me to his class to give a talk because he couldn't get Hindus to talk on this issue. They were all very scared. So he would, I would go and talk in his class. And so he said, one of the, the, the final will, the goals of Mullah Omar is he wants to fly the, red, the black flag of the Taliban on the Red Fort of Delhi mm -hmm. to re recreate the Mughal Empire as the Taliban Empire. That's what he wants to do. So this business about let's re reunify, we're sort of playing into their hands in one sense. 
Sure, but I, I think at that time it made sense. Now gurus, uh, you know, they live with their time in the present moment. So you might say something very different today. Yes. So now let's talk about uh, France, because you're having a similar problem in France with the Islam. So why the French experiment to domesticate Islam and make it part of French culture uh, may have backfired because the Muslims taken advantage of it. Uh, gotten in and then this whole uh, philosophy called uh, al-taqiyya where you know when you're a minority you behave yourself and then when you have enough power you start asserting yourself well they've shifted now so what do you think is happening in france vis-a-vis -vis the islam well I, I think it worked you know because at some point some of france's best writers humorists actors you know they were muslims french muslims and brilliant Sufis. people or no no, no, yeah, just, all just all kind, you know, Moroccan, Tunisian, origin, right. uh, Algerian. At some point, something went wrong. I think the, the, the youth got radicalized. Same thing that happened in Kashmir, you know, the youth got radicalized and, and, they, and as usual, it's a violent minority that has a sway on, on, the, on the silent majority. But what today, I think most Muslims in France... Uh, have this separatist tendency and that, that is very frightening. That so I have a theory that, you know, there are certain, uh, uh, there are certain movements which are deceptive because they seem very benign. Uh, you can, there are some uh, Christian movements also where they're very nice and benign when they go to another country and there is this Islamic, very nice and friendly, benign Islam. These are not stable, long-term equilibrium. They are ten temporary, temporary equilibrium. And they are a way to sort of deconstruct and bring down the opposing, opposing side. Once it is softened, once you soften the target, then the hard Islam comes. So maybe the initial wave is soft Islam. Maybe, but I see even today, you know, in France, you know, French Muslims who, you know, who seem integrated and happy and peaceful. But... Uh, you know, the world of football is interesting because in football, Islam is even in France, you know, there are many Muslim French footballers and they are very fashionable, you know, everybody wears beard now in football and everybody, you know, says salam alaikum. And uh, so this fashion of Islam is also dangerous to in my mind. It's fashion, culture, dress. Yes. Lifestyle. Hairstyle also, you yeah. know. So, don't you think it's the responsibility of people who call themselves liberal Muslims to fight these guys? I have a lot of friends here who, are, who keep saying they're liberal Muslims and all that, and they talk all kinds of good stuff. They're very democratic, very westernized, educated, scientific kind of people. And they also tell us they hate all these Islamic radicals. But why don't they go and organize a reformation? Like Europe had a reformation. Right, right. Now this reformation takes many generations, and it is bloody. It is not an easy thing. So it is the Christians who decided to rise against the, a certain kind of Christianity and create a reformation right, right. and domesticate them, tame them, clip their wings, put them in their place. So the Muslims need a reformation. And, and rather than the American bombing trying to do that, the real job is of Muslim liberals. In Pakistan, the Bhutto people, all these liberal type people, gave the same story that they will solve these problems and, we, and Americans should uh, fund them with billions of dollars. They took these billions of dollars and they got more and more radicalized. So there is a kind of, I think there's a kind of dishonesty among the liberal Muslims. Yes. And the silent majority is always silent. In India, we see that every time there is a, 
you know, there is a bomb, you know, that Muslims join candlelight, but they never condemn the Quran, because, the, as you said, the problem is in the Quran. I mean, unless the Quran is reformed, which was written in the, you know, it was okay for this time, you know, in those violent times of the, you know, 8th century, 9th century, 10th century, Middle Ages, it was all right, but today, some of the things that Koran say when that, that are applied by, by these uh, extremist Muslims, they need to be taken out of the Koran, but nobody dares to do it. That reminds me, uh, uh, when I first started Infinity Foundation, back in about 20 years ago, there was a grant request from Cornell University. They wanted to hold a world conference on religious peace. And uh, in a few years, and they, we were going to give them this grant, and they were going to bring all the top religious leaders of various religions to condemn violence of uh, all the bad guys. So I said, what about them themselves? Will they condemn their own books also? And she said, oh, what, why, no, they're all peace and all that. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'll tell you what, first grant will not be for the conference. First grant will be you pick two graduate students from every major religion, and they will sit down for the summer and look at each other's books wherever there is violence against outsiders, kafirs, infidels, everybody. They will yellow highlight, they will highlight all this. They'll make a list of all these verses that should be deactivated. So the, any, each religious leader will say, okay, these particular sections of my books, I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to delete them and I'm not condemning them, but I won't teach them anymore. And this will be a resolution. So this lady thought this is a very innovative and brilliant idea. It is, yeah. So she went and talked to all these people. And then a month or two later, she came back and said that they're all so angry, particularly the Muslims, particularly the Christians. They don't want to tamper with their holy books. So you see, there is duplicity there. There is, there is. But my theory is that Islam will implode from within. We see already in Pakistan that the forces that Pakistan has unleashed against India and others are coming back unto them. You know, that massacre of the school you know, was terrible. You know? And, uh, and there, there are so many attacks you now in Pakistan. The Shahs are killing, you know, the Sunnis, I mean, rather the Sunnis are killing the Shahs all over the world, not only in Pakistan, but it's terrible, no? I mean, they kill 100 people, 200 people, they blow them, I mean, it's... I think that India should champion the separation of Balochistan. That's my feeling. Because if Balochistan, Balochistan was not a part of Pakistan when it got independence from the British. It was annexed later. Balochistan was never part of the British Empire. It was a separate thing, like Afghanistan, Iran. And so when Pakistan got independence from the British, they then later annexed Balochistan against their will. So it was, it was never really a proper deal. Uh, and now Balochistan is what uh, uh, makes Afghanistan landlocked. They don't have access. They have to fly over Balochistan. Okay. So the U.S. is begging Pakistan to give them rights to fly over to Afghanistan because otherwise they cannot defend Afghanistan. But if Balochistan were separate, they wouldn't need Pakistan. So the U.S. encouraging Balochistan to separate? Well, the U.S. should in my opinion. But, but there's a Baluchi separatist movement in New York, Washington, London, various places. I've gone and met some of them. Oh, they would like help from anybody. I think Modi has now begun to make statements that he will support. Yes. And I think it's about time. Uh, I've wanted this for a very long time. I feel that uh, this is one of the things that uh, Hindus should put on the table in the U.S. election. When, when they're saying support us, do we support Clinton or Trump or who do we support? Well, there ought to be demands. Uh, you don't support unconditionally because somebody's a nice guy. You put some demands on the table. Correct, correct. So, so one of the demands should be that the uh, next U.S. government should deactivate NGOs in India that are funding Christian evangelism. And another one should be that they should support India in the UN Security Council. Another one should be that they should support Baluchi independence. 
these are some of the very strong very, demands. Nice, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, uh, so, uh, but do, are, are there are Hindus listening to you in the no, US? No, because Hindus would rather go get a nice event and be very happy I and know, famous and shake hands with everybody and get their pictures. But they're not making strong demands. And Americans are used to making a deal where you support me and I'll watch your demand. Mm. You know, so we have to put up these demands. Yeah. I think the Baluchi, Baluchistan, Independence is a very logical, it's a human rights issue, it's practical for uh, India India and uh, USA to collaborate, even Iran would collaborate on this, and this should happen. And this will dismantle Pakistan because they will no longer have the clout that they control the access to the sea. Even China's uh, access from Tibet to Kashmir goes and arrives in the Arabian Sea in Balochistan. So they will be out of that. That Gaza port is there. No? That is in Baluchistan. Mm. So they will. The that. whole geopolitics will change. The if, Chinese play a very, 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 very bad role. Huh? Yeah, you know that. Yes, no? Chinese are. Yeah, they, they're behind. They're propping up. Pakistan. Propping up. And these uh, you guys do the dirty work. Mm. They are the the hit squad. The mm. Pakistan is doing all the dirty work for China. Mm. China is never going to attack India. They just keep an army to keep India locked there. Mm. But they get Pakistan to do all this kind of work. Chinese are very smart. Huh? Very smart cunning kind of people. So I want to uh, change to a different, uh, I want to talk about history because we've noticed some of the problems that Indians have, that we're not strong enough in, uh, you know, uh, counter-attacking. Uh, now, the French had the French Revolution and that be, created a nationalism. Americans had the American Revolution violent to throw out the British and then had the civil war to unify the country, get rid of slavery. So violent, two violent revolutions. China had this Maoist revolution. So when you look at uh, most nation states that have become powerful, they played, they paid the price of blood, bloodshed. And we are very proud that uh, neither Gandhi nor Tagore wanted any violence. Uh, but uh, Subhash Chandra Bose and uh, Bhagat Singh did. So uh, it's a very controversial topic. Uh, because it's against the grain of Indian thought to even propose it. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's a topic for discussion. Would India have been a different kind of country if we had had a violent revolution to get rid of the British? Like suppose Subhash Chandra Bose style of revolution, it would have created a nationalism, uh, we would have lost a lot of people, but we would have learned the value of freedom. And I think we take it for granted because we just got it, you know, just kind of got it. Sure, sure. I think it would have changed everything. And uh, but the problem is that the Hindus lacked that that spirit of revolution, you know, the spirit to the, of fighting for what is for what is good, what is true, for what is yours. And uh, the fault is the Hindus mostly. Because but they, to watch the boss was a guy who was igniting that yes. that thing. And had it been him uh, creating the revolution. Uh, it would have been a revolution where British would have been like, violently kicked out. And that would have set a precedence that, you know, we are good when we get up and fight. But instead you got Nehru, yes. who wanted no army and got humiliated by the Chinese and, uh, uh, and so, many, so many prime ministers of India who were the same spirit. What's interesting, I wanted your opinion on that. What is the reason for the Hindus' lack of courage? So I, I, this I think is uh, the British did a very good job of co-opting sepoys to work for them. And uh, these brown sahibs, these uh, IAS officers, these babus, uh, giving them stature, giving them some prestige. And the king, the Raja would get this gun salute and he would come on this elephant and his kids would go to Cambridge. And, you know, so I think the British did a very good job of uh, that. 
and the Americans are more sophisticated even then, even beyond that. So while the British were able to keep the Indians at a certain level with the Englishmen at the higher level, the Americans are able to get the Englishmen even to high levels and get Nobel Prizes and become big shots here and there in the government. But at the end of the day, it's the American framework and way, and way of thinking and, and the, the strings of power are controlled. But the Indians are, Indians are brought into high positions in American institutions, but the control of the institutions remains somewhere else. So, so I think this is a tendency that Indians need to understand. Uh, that this that this decolonization hasn't happened. No. We got political freedom, but not uh, ideological and intellectual no. freedom. No, no. Secularism has been uh, done great damage to India. Secularism is a is a yes. Secularism. Great damage. Secularism, Even today. And then Marxism, then post-colonial studies, then subaltern studies, and all these different imported things, uh, each at one wave after the other, uh, causing havoc to our own, you know, dharmic civilization. Mm, yeah. So I think that has that has been pretty bad. But as we said on 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 the social media, we see now a rising nationalism, and that is a good sign. Yes, and Mr. Modi is also a good sign. Yes, Mr. Yes. So here I want to ask you, since you mentioned this, Mr. Modi himself, yes, he's had the right ideals and and so forth. But then there is the Modi Sarkar, the government. Uh, it's halfway through a five-year term, and what is your thought on how he's done? A lot of people feel that so far they haven't really started uh, much about. Uh, Indian civilization issues, uh, some feel it'll come later. What do you think is happening? I think he wanted to start slowly and not antagonizing uh, people and also rise above, you know, being the Prime Minister of all India and rise above partisanship. I, I think that was a mistake, you know, he should have. Because the Modi that was elected was the, you know, the, the fiery Modi of Gujarat, you know, who called the spade a spade, who was, you know, hard-hitting and was also known to be non-corrupt and a good uh, administrator and a hard-working man and a nationalist. So Hindus voted for that money, from the Dalit to the Brahmin. There right. was a united, united Hindu for once. No? There right. was a united Hindu vote. Right. But the Modi of today doesn't resemble the Modi of Gujarat. <laughs> and uh, I think he should. I mean, he has to start thinking now that after two and a half years that so little has been achieved in terms of the major change that India needs in education, you know, in the judiciary, in the, you know, the removing of Article 370, in the common civil code, you know, and nothing has been done, absolutely nothing. And he has to think not only about that, but how is he going to be re-elected? Yes, I, I, I that, I, he has I, to show, you know, people need a Putin, they don't need a, another Vajpayee. You know? Right. And so this, uh, uh, you know, I'm surprised because I go to so many uh, places and meet government bodies uh, the trustees are still the same guys. Uh, they they he didn't want to, uh, to to what to say to to shake the apple cart. Yeah, no, yeah, no, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you know, so, so there is no uh, solid, uh, you know, Indian civilization, Indian grand narrative government body that is no nonsense pursuing this. There is none. None. And I just feel very surprised. I mean, I go there. I'm still considered like I feel, still feel like I'm an outsider, and I have to sell my point of view to one official after another in this new government. And they're all kind of privately very nice. Has he invited you to, to meet him, Modi? Uh, yeah, but the thing is, privately very nice. Mm. Privately, all the ministers I've met, ministers are very nice, I think they're genuinely, but you know, the next level is the government uh, official the departments in, uh, in uh, 
various ministries. I mean, they are still shy, afraid. Take a why Delhi, Washington D.C., Indian Embassy. They invite my the people on the other side that I'm always having big arguments with. They invite them to give talks, but they never invite me because it'll be controversial. Same for me in the French Embassy. They invite all these. Shafrulu and these people, but they never invite me. <laughs> Good. So we are both. We, we got something in common. Yeah. We got something. We still, uh, we still, you know, uh, outsiders. So you know now a good example uh, of people that I have big fights with is uh, somebody, a guy called Devdutt Patnaik in Bombay. Uh, he he's a Wendy Doniger, Sheldon Pollock kind of a orientation promotes them a lot. And so the the mischief being done is that he will say he's promoting Hinduism, but his idea of Hinduism is it's all myths and it's all kind of you know he, he talks about the human rights issues, the problems. So it is a kind of a hijacking from within also going on. That there are people who are disguised imposters who who are very carefully they're they're very smug neatly smuggled in. And I even know some people inside the government inside the RSS. Right. who are kind of, uh, you know, working on both sides because they've been compromised. So that's a problem. Yeah, Hindus have always been the greatest enemies of Hindus. I don't think invaders could have, you know, raped India without Hindus betraying Hindus. And today, as you know, in the United States, you know, the, 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 the worst traitors are Hindus in the media. You know, the worst traitors are Hindus. And in the government, is true. I think the, the government of Mr. Modi is still functioned in the Congress style. You know, the ministries, the way the ministers function, they have, you know, like in France, you know, you can access ministers, you know. You, even the president, you need a few days, and, but you can, you can have a message sent across. Here in India, the, each minister has, you know, three, four private secretaries, and in turn they have, you know, secretaries, so there are four layers of people to reach the minister. A lot of guards. A lot you know, of guards and, and, you know, and guards. It's a, a Congress system, you know, yeah. and people come for favor. You know, what I saw in Gujarat, that people came, Mr. Modi installed a system where people came to work with the ministers, you know, he forced, he forced ministers to work. But in Delhi, people come for favors, you know, they come for favors, they don't come for work. And Mr. Modi has not changed that, and that is a great, great drawback, I feel. Yeah. So one of the uh, one of the questions I want to ask, given your French background, also is that uh, French have done a lot to protect the distinctiveness of their culture and language. Some people would say that the cost is that you get isolated. Okay. Now China, Japan, also uh, protecting the Japanese language and so on. Uh, you know, uh, the the issue is the trade-off is uh, how how good are you in globalization. Uh, versus protecting yourself. Now the Japanese did a very good job using industry, making products like Sony and Toshiba and uh, whatever, Toyota, every, all those kind of things, which are kind of global brands, uh, but, in but the people manufacturing them are very Japanese, they're speaking their own stuff. China is trying something where uh, it wants to have Mandarin as the mother tongue, and uh, so that's the French model and the Japanese model, and it wants to have Confucian thought as sort of their world worldview, yeah. and yet become a global player. Now, India has not been able to sort this out. Uh, the the average Indian thinks that if you are traditional, you will, you cannot be a player in the global economy, and if you want to be globalized, you got to be anglicized. Hmm. So, what are your thoughts on this balance? Again, it's uh, not not good, not good. 
and I live in India and I, I came here 40 years ago and today after 40 years still you know this manufacturing is not a good quality you can't trust really the electricity is going to be there there's enough water whether the, the guy will sell you something it's really you know genuine so there is no love of the good work you know there's no love of uh, of doing something not 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 even for india but you know of, of something that one can be proud of so as a result the manufacturing in india is really not up to the mark you know, the chinese are so far ahead you know indians don't still don't manufacture computers come on after so long you know the chinese have lenovo and you know which is going to be leader in the world and indians hardly manufacture any cell phones you know so there is no drive and as you say it's a result of you know this trauma of the do you think that this uh, tendency to idolatrize idolize personality has been project has been carried over into the human realm so yes. we idolize not only movie stars and cricket stars but billionaires they become like celebrities and many of these billionaires some i've talked to i don't consider them to be nationalists at all i don't consider them to be decent human beings even at all mm-hmm. i think they they lack a sense of ethics and responsibility to give back to society they're just accumulating for themselves in fact i feel that some of the very very extremely wealthy americans are more philanthropic right for their you know in the united states the library system was done by carnegie he did this whole library system rockefeller has built so much to create the american grand narrative so these are the people who started in the late 1800s uh, then ford joined them later on they decided that what the equivalent of the the what would be the indian narrative and the indian museums and library culture and you know that kind of a nationalism it's these kind of american billionaires long ago who started that absolutely I, I don't right. see the top few indians absolutely. saying you know that we no, are going nobody to, nobody they don't no, have that vision no nobody but even the common man doesn't have that there's no civic sense in i love the hindu that defend them like you so much there's no civic sense in india yes. you just throw the litter you know pollute the river and you know cheat and there's no civic sense it's it's a uh, it's uh, optimization of the selfish me now rather than the collective good completely. there is a big issue there completely and people... i think it's very important that people who are leaders like us you yourself have to be very open in saying that this is this is the caliber of many of our followers yeah modi can could uh, i i say can or could modi can do it or could have done it he's the one who you know people looked up to and he could have shown by his example that in mother india india is you know and i don't think he's done it really take our example you have a lot of followers you have 400000 followers on facebook so if 1% were very solid there for you willing to do everything you said you know that would be 4000 now if in my, i mean similar number if i were to do I, i would say there's no way there is that many people not even so it means that 99 point something something percent are just there to kind of watch and be part of the parade look at the parade a tamasha going on a kind of from entertainment you know you're watching a cricket match this guy hit a sixer francois hit a big sixer all the time we clap and we feel very happy but we're not there to do anything that kind of a passive support i know i know this there's a lack of even hindu leaders you know you have seen in the us you know they they burn out very quickly you know mm-hmm. the next time you come they're gone 
mm. whether they're married or they, you know, they're yeah. doing business or they they fought among themselves or they got bitter. They, that was a passing phase, and they they had their stay and they're gone mm. and they got tired. Mm. People ask me, why are you still doing it? You've been doing it for a long time. Why aren't you tired? I mean, they really think that I ought to just do it for a while and then yeah, get tired. Yeah. That's the normal. If you believe in something, you have to, I mean, even yes. if you age, even if you age, you have to stick to your beliefs. So, <laughs> so I, uh, <clears throat> I just want to, uh, I think there's so many things we could talk about, but we'll keep talking. I think we should keep talking regularly. Sure, sure. And I want to thank you for coming and I wish you good luck. Uh, you have a uh, hectic schedule uh, and I want to tell my uh, followers, the viewers that uh, please go and look at his, uh, I'm going to post the links to his page. And also, please go to his museum website in Pune, Pune and support it. I mean, it's not good enough to just sort of say, oh, yeah, this guy is doing good work. You should support it. Uh, when he has a call to action saying, I need this help, that help, then pe people should please go and do something about it. Because we need more examples like this. But as you said, no, this museum should not be done by a Frenchman. It should be done by an Indian. And yes, <laughs> and you, you guys should be taking over in terms of responsibility and not just saying we are clapping because somebody else is doing the work. But it's a difficult task, but you know, it should be done by an Indian. Yes. Thank you very much, Francois. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good night. Good night.